Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for Nick and G and the sp- the, just the special, special blessing that they have been uh, to this ministry, um, Lord, to my family uh, personally, Lord. Uh, what a blessing it's been to see G here in Iwakuni these last few months. And un- though her time here has been short, we know that she's uh, impacted a number of lives. And so we thank you for her and thank you that you've brought her to Pastor Nick. He's praying for her for quite some time, and uh, just a blessing to see how you brought them together, Lord. And uh, Lord, we know that you have great and awesome and incredible things for, uh, in store for them, Lord. It is, we can't even begin to fathom all that you have for them. And so, Lord, we just thank you ahead of time for all that you're going to do. We pray blessings upon them as they head uh, back to California, as they head back to the barn. We pray that they would just continue to be a huge blessing to the body of Christ there in Temecula. And Lord, we pray for your will to be done. You know our hearts, you know our desires, you know their heart's desire as well. And we pray, above all else, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so, Lord, we lift them to you. We entrust them to you, knowing that there's no greater place and no better place to entrust them to than into your hands. And so we lift them to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 You didn't try this time. Nope. Got them all out first service. (laughs) All right. As everyone makes their way back to their seat, let's go ahead and dismiss our elementary age children at this time as well. We'll all kind of scatter at once. That'll give room for you guys standing in the back as well. Also, Bible English class is dismissed. Uh, So they already knew that probably. Yeah, Andrew and Denise, good to go. (laughs) All right, last week, you guys, we had a special guest speaker come up from Calvary Chapel, Okinawa, a friend of mine, Josh Benyaro, he came and he shared the word with you guys. Uh, But this morning, we're going to be back in our verse-by-verse study through the book of 1 Timothy. Now, when I last left off, I had finished off chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. And in chapter 1, we looked at Paul's exhortation to Timothy to confront false teachers. We read about Paul's personal retrospect of God's work in his own life. And we saw Paul charge Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. And then while I was away, Pastor Nick continued through the book of 1 Timothy, covering chapters 2 and 3, Uh, There, Pastor Nick highlighted the need for prayer in the church, along with the roles and the responsibilities of men and women within the church, as well as the leadership of the church. And then two weeks ago, at the end of chapter 3, Pastor Nick highlighted the purpose of Paul's writing to Timothy. Paul wrote so that Timothy, and by extension, the church in Ephesus and the church today, okay, that we would know how to conduct ourselves within the house of God explaining how we have been given the responsibility of being keepers of the mystery, as Paul spoke of the mystery of godliness that has been delivered to us. Now, this morning, we're going to pick up our study in chapter 4, okay, covering the first 10 verses of the chapter in a message that I've entitled, God, excuse me, Good Ministers of Jesus Christ. Good Ministers of Jesus Christ. I'm churning there. My place got lost. There we go. There we go. All right. Will you all please rise to your feet in honor of God and His holy word? 
I'm going to read through our text this morning from my Bible. I'm reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. If you're reading from a different translation, that's fine. just want to encourage you, do your best to follow along, okay? Paul continues his letter to young Timothy, pastor there in Ephesus, with the following in chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Verse 6. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. But reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. That's the word of the Lord for us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning, the opportunity we have to open your word and allow your word to speak to us. Lord, we thank you for the promise of your word that tells us that your word is active, that it is living, Lord, that it will accomplish that which you send it forth to do. And so, Lord, have your way this morning. May your word penetrate our hearts and lives. May we cling to it. May we build our lives upon it. Lead and guide us in our time of study. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Here in chapter 4, Paul is writing to Timothy, and he once again brings up the topic of false teachers. Paul opened up his letter to Timothy with a charge to Timothy that he remain in Ephesus so that he would be able to confront and stand against those who were teaching false doctrine. If you look there in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he wrote, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. He continued in verses 6 and 7, describing how these false teachers had strayed from a sincere faith and turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, yet not understanding either what they say nor the things which they affirm. Here in chapter 4, he brings these false teachers back into focus once again, instructing Timothy about their ways and explaining to him how he needs to instruct the brethren, the church there in Ephesus, about their deceitful and detrimental doctrine in order to protect the church from their ways. Paul tells Timothy in verse 6 of our text that he will be a good minister of Jesus Christ if he instructs the brethren in these things. 
Now, in contrast to these false teachers at the opening of the chapter, okay, Paul goes on to speak of Timothy, uh, to Timothy about what it's like to be a true minister and what is expected of a true minister of Jesus Christ, a, a good minister of Jesus Christ. And, and that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Here, we're going to note a number of examples of what it takes to be a good minister of Jesus Christ. Now, before some of you tune me out, okay, and, and think that this message isn't for you because you aren't a minister of Jesus Christ, let me explain to you what the word minister means, okay? When we use the word minister in, in English, okay, uh, it usually creates a mental picture of someone who perhaps dresses in nice clothing or maybe even weird clothing and robes, depending upon what kind of denominational background you come from, and they get up behind the pulpit and they proclaim God's word, okay? And I understand why that is our mental picture, okay? I am a minister of Christ, and while I can't say much for my wardrobe because I don't like fancy clothes, um, I own one suit and it's got to work for weddings, funerals, and anything else that it needs to work for, okay? Um, but I do get up here, you know, behind the pulpit, and I deliver God's word. But you have to understand, the word minister here in the Greek simply means a servant. Okay? In fact, some of your translations may translate the word minister in verse 6 as the word servant. Okay? If you're reading this morning from the English Standard Version, okay, or the New American Standard Bible, or the Christian Standard Bible, all those ones and others use the word servant in place of the word minister. And as believers and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are all called to serve. We're all called to be servants of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to this earth not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' life was exemplified by service. And as followers of Christ, we too are called to a life of servanthood. Jesus said, if anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant, okay, this same Greek word that's in our text, will be also. You see, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are called to serve, to be a servant of Jesus Christ, to be a minister of Christ. And so this text is for you just as much as it is for me. Okay, we are all called to be ministers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And hopefully, we all want to be good ministers of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's take a look at what Paul lays out here for Timothy in regard to being a good minister of Jesus Christ. Take a look at the beginning of our opening verse, verse 1. Once again with me, it starts, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. We're going to pause right there. Paul opens the chapter speaking about false teachers. He gives to us a bit of a time marker to note. He's speaking about false teachers and how they will come about in the latter times. Now, it's important that we understand what Paul's talking about when he says the latter times. This is the only time Paul ever uses this specific phraseology, but it would seem that Paul is speaking about a time that we more commonly refer to as the last days. 
In his second letter to Timothy, Paul will reference this time frame in chapter 3, stating, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. And he goes on to talk about how men will be lovers of self and lovers of money and blasphemers, and they'll be disobedient. And he talks about how they'll come with a form of godliness, but deny its power and how they will try to lead people away from the faith, just like these false teachers that we are reading of here in 1 Timothy. Now, From a biblical perspective, it would seem that the period of time known as the last days have actually been ongoing for the last couple thousand years. And while that may not make sense in our minds, biblically, we can support that idea. Because in Acts chapter 2, Peter identified the day of Pentecost as a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy concerning the last days. When people were confused about what was going on there on the day of Pentecost, some of the people accused the disciples of being drunk. But Peter stood and he proclaimed, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. Acts chapter 2 verses 14 through 18. So Peter identified the beginning of the church, okay, when the Holy Spirit was given on the day of Pentecost as the beginning of the last days. And it would seem that we have been living in the last days ever since. And it is my belief that the last days will continue as long as the church is around that the last days won't come to an end until the church is removed from the earth in what we call the rapture, where the church in Christ will be caught up into heaven to be with the Lord for the rest of eternity. Here in our text, Paul is warning Timothy about false teachers that the Spirit of God has said would come around during the latter times or during the last days. That time had come upon Timothy there in Ephesus. And we have seen a continuation of such ever since the first century church. History is filled with examples of false teachers who have come and gone, those who have risen and fallen throughout church history. Even today, we see a great number of false teachers out there filling pulpits and gathering large masses of people who are quick to receive anything these false teachers have to say. Now, our text says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith. And this brings up a very interesting and somewhat divisive topic regarding our eternal security in Christ. You see, there are those who claim that once someone has come to the faith, meaning that, you know, they have come to receive Christ as their Lord and Savior, they are saved then they are eternally, unconditionally secure in that faith. That no matter what happens in life, they will always be saved. The term once saved, always saved is often associated with this line of thinking. 
then there are those who claim, on the contrary, that salvation is something that can be lost or taken away or perhaps even forfeited. Here in verse 1, Paul says there will be some who depart from the faith, which makes one think that in order for them to depart from the faith, they had to first be part of the faith. They had to be in the faith. And this creates a potential problem for those in the once saved, always saved camp. But it isn't an impossible problem to solve. Most will simply say, well, if they left the faith, then they never really were part of the faith. Okay? And there's some biblical support to that idea. In the book of 1 John, John writes of how many antichrists have come and how they were part of their group, but then they left. He writes, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would not have, they would have continued with us, excuse me, but they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. And so the idea is there was these people in the church, these antichrists, people who are acting the part of antichrist in the church, and they ended up departing. And that just proved that they never really were part of the church by the fact that they left. Okay. But here's the, the truth of the matter. The truth of the matter is that you and I, we don't know for certain who is and who isn't saved. We can have faith that certain people are saved. We can believe people are saved, but we cannot see the hearts of people, right? God alone sees and knows the hearts of every man. 2 Timothy chapter 2, 19 declares that the Lord knows those who are His. He doesn't say we know who are His. He says the Lord knows whose are His. Okay, the best that we can do is make a judgment call based upon one's fruit in their life. But we can't see the hidden things of the heart. Only God knows that. And so it could be that there are people in the church who look and act the part of a believer, but in reality, they are not saved. They're just pretending. They're going through the motions, okay? And, and they haven't sincerely surrendered their hearts and lives to the Lord. And I believe this to be true in general about the church. But I hope it isn't true of anyone here in this church today. Now, some have asked me where I fall on this particular topic, as it is a divisive one. Okay? I myself do not believe that someone can lose their salvation, uh, meaning I do not believe someone who's genuinely saved can do something so bad that it would make them lose their salvation. As if a, a believer got caught up in a particular sin, and it was such a bad sin that as a result of that, they lost their salvation over it, and now they're no longer saved. I do not believe that that can happen. I don't think there's a strong, any sort of strong biblical support for that. I do not believe someone can take your salvation away from you. We are secure in the hands of Christ, and none can snatch us away from him, as described in John chapter 10, verse 28. Satan and his minions, his demons, cannot force us to leave Christ or our faith in him. However, the thought or idea of someone forfeiting their salvation is something that creates a difficult scenario. Can someone change their mind after coming to faith in Christ? You know, can, can someone willfully choose to leave the faith after coming to the faith? Do we lose our free will after coming to faith? I, I don't know for certain. Okay? 
you know, the Bible has a lot of warnings about apostasy, about leaving the faith. And it would seem weird to have so many warnings about something that isn't actually possible, right? Why would the Bible give us so many warnings about not leaving the faith and the need to continue in the faith if leaving it or not continuing in it wasn't really an option? And so this truly is an issue that has caused a lot of debate and a lot of division within the church. For me, I take comfort in what Jesus said in John chapter 15. Jesus said this there in John 15 verses 4 through 6. He said, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. Jesus makes it very clear that as long as we abide in him, we'll be just fine. Okay? If we stick close to Jesus, okay, connected to Him, abiding in Him, He will be with us. We need not worry about anything. Abiding in Jesus doesn't mean that we're perfect. Okay, we'll still fall short. We'll still sin. What it means is that we stay connected with Him even when we do blow it. We confess our sin. We re repent from our sin. We seek, seek to live a life free from sin though we know we'll fall short. Sin separates us from God. It drives us away from Him. And so I wanna, don't want to have anything to do with something that tries to separate me from God because I want to abide in Him. Abiding in Christ makes me want to be close to Him, plugged into Him, growing in and through Him. And, and you guys, that's the first point I want to make here about being a good minister of Jesus Christ. It's a simple one. But a good minister of Jesus Christ will abide in Christ. Okay, we won't have to worry about departing the faith or falling away from the faith because we will be connected to Jesus, abiding in him, and he in us. Back to our text. Read verse 1 again as we take note of the end of the verse. It says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. We'll pause. Paul says that those who depart the faith do so giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. You see, the enemy is out there sowing his counterfeit gospel, his own doctrine, his own teachings, looking for people who will be swayed away from the simplicity of the one true gospel in Jesus Christ. The doctrine or the teachings, if you will, of demons, they all share a common root. Okay? They all come against and oppose God's holy word. The devil's first form of instruction to Eve was to get Eve to doubt God's word. The very first words out of the serpent's mouth in Genesis 3 were, Has God indeed said? Right? The tactics of the enemy haven't changed at all. Okay? The attack is always upon God's word. And every single doctrine or teaching of the enemy is given in opposition to God's word. It might sound good and it might look okay, but upon closer inspection, you realize this does not line up with Scripture. 
And so how do we protect ourselves from falling prey to this sort of deception and demonic activity, this uh, doctrine of demons? Well, we know what God's Word says in the first place. Okay? Quite simple. If we know God's Word, then we will be able to tell when something doesn't line up with it. If someone comes along teaching something that is contrary to God's revealed word, we will know not to receive what they have to say. We will know that what they are saying is an attack upon God's word and we shouldn't have anything to do with them. You see, a good minister of Jesus Christ will know the word of God. And the only way to know the word of God is to spend time in it, reading it, listening to it, studying it for yourselves. Okay, don't take my word for it. Read the Bible for yourself. Okay, know what you believe. Know the word of God and be familiar with it so that if someone comes and starts saying something that's contrary, you'll be able to know that does not line up with Scripture. Let's move, in, move on in our text. Take a look at what Paul writes in verse 2. He says, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Again, Paul's describing these false teachers who depart from the faith and they, how they speak lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. The idea here is that these false teachers say one thing and do another. Okay? They are hypocrites. They are liars. They say one thing to one person, turn around and say the opposite to another person. They just tell people whatever they want to hear. They've gotten to the point where lying is something that comes to be natural for them. They lie. They don't feel bad at all about doing so. They have sinned so much that it no longer affects them. They have become desensitized to sin. That is what Paul is describing here when he talks about their conscience being seared with a hot iron. They've lied so much and so often that their conscience no longer bears witness against them. It doesn't feel any sort of guilt, any sort of remorse for their sin whatsoever. You know, back when I was uh, in college many years ago, uh, before some of you young ones were born, um, I used to work at a restaurant uh, as a server. It was a good way to make some money and still do school full-time, okay? Okay. And many of the cooks that I worked with at the restaurant had built up calluses on their fingers that allowed them to handle hot food. Some of them could actually take the food right out of the fryer, like lift up it out of the fryer and just reach their hand in and pull it out because they had burned the fingertips so many times they had built up these calluses that they were desensitized to the heat. They didn't feel it, okay? Uh, and so they could touch hot food, no biggie, no problem whatsoever. That is what Paul's describing here. These false teachers have lied over and over and over again so much that it doesn't even bother them. They become calloused to it, desensitized. You know, if we're not careful, we can fall into this same trap of being coming desensitized to sin. We can entertain sin so often, so repeatedly, that we become desensitized to it, to where it no longer impacts us when we sin. We simply write it off as natural or normal or as if it's okay to do this. For these false teachers, it was lying. Some of you may think, well, a little white lie every now and then doesn't hurt. You know, but over time, your conscience becomes seared. 
you begin to no longer feel bad for telling a lie, and your lies get bigger and bolder, and you end up getting in a lot of trouble. Or what about other things in your life that you can become desensitized to? Sins in your life that you don't think are that big of a deal, and you continue to engage in them even though you know that they are wrong. You know, I think one particular sin that many people struggle with in this area is drunkenness. We know, as believers, we're not to get drunk. Scriptures are very clear about that, right? And yet, far too many Christians find themselves engaging in excessive drinking. It's become somewhat normal, and you just accept it now. You know, it's okay. Even though you know what God's Word has to say about drunkenness, that it's a sin, you're like, it's okay. I can do it. It's normal. Everybody else is doing it. Then there's sexual immorality. And this can take many different forms, whether it be pornography, lusting after other people, premarital sex, solo sex, anything sexual outside of the confines of a marriage between one man, one woman, is lumped together with sexual immorality. Some people have gotten so caught up in sexual immorality that it just seems natural. They become desensitized to it. It doesn't impact them. They can do that kind of stuff, engage in it, and it's like, no big deal. Church family, can I encourage you, exhort you? Be careful. Be very careful. Okay? Don't allow yourself to become desensitized to sin and its effect upon you. You know, the application for us as good ministers is that we need to be sensitive to the Word of God. Okay, we need not only know God's Word, but we need to be sensitive to it. We need to let God's Word lead us and direct us when it comes to how we are to live our lives. When we are sensitive to the Word of God, we don't allow ourselves to become desensitized to sin, callous to it. Our conscience is aware of what God wants and is attentive to God's Word and wanting to live out each and every day to the glory of God. That's where we want to be. Let's continue in our text. Take a look at verses 3 through 5. He's continuing to talk about the uh, ways of these false teachers and how they are forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, And nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. These false teachers were going around trying to say that abstaining from certain things would make you more holy or more godly. That if you don't eat certain foods, it makes you holy. If you don't get married, you live a celibate life, that makes you more godly. They were going around teaching people that this is what God demanded of them. For them to give up certain foods, to give up entering into a physical and loving relationship with the spouse. But this flies in the face of what God's word clearly teaches us. God created food to be received with thanksgiving. All food is clean and open for us to consume should we choose. In Acts chapter 10, God came to Peter in a vision showing him a sheet filled with all sorts of different animals, four-footed animals, winged animals, creeping, uh, crawling animals. And God told Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said to him, not so, Lord, claiming he had never eaten anything unclean or common. And that is when God said to him in Acts chapter 10, verse 15, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. 
God was teaching Peter that he no longer needed to live under strict Jewish dietary laws, that he had cleansed all foods, making them available for consumption. Paul earlier wrote in 1 Corinthians, foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods. Jesus said, hear and understand, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. You see, what we put into our mouth to eat or don't put into our mouth doesn't make us any holier. It doesn't make us godlier. The food we eat or don't eat, for that matter, does not change our status with God one single bit. But yet, these false teachers were forbidding people from eating certain things because it would evidently defile them. It was all just another lie, something they could use to keep control of the people. God created marriage, okay? And he said that it was good. In fact, God said after creating man that it is not good that man should be alone. Now, some people may be called to a life of celibacy, okay? And and for them, abstaining from marriage is something God has called them to and prepared them for. But for all the rest of us, God has given us marriage to help us out in life. Marriage was God's way of providing a helpmate for Adam, someone to come alongside him and partner together with him in life and his God-given responsibility as a steward of God's creation. Marriage is a beautiful thing, created and ordained by God. Preventing people from getting married would be keeping them from something that God gave to be received with thanksgiving. And we know this because God's word tells us so. Again, the importance of knowing God's word comes into play here. We know that marriage is good, Because God's word tells us it's good. We know that food we eat doesn't impact our relationship with God because God's word tells us so. The food we ate, it's sanctified by the word of God and prayer. When we sit down uh, to a meal and we give thanks to God for his provision, we're receiving what God's provided and and we're giving thanks for it. it. It's set apart for the Lord in that way, in that manner. It's sanctified. Now, I do think there's something we must keep in mind here as we consider the freedoms and the liberties that we have in Christ. While all things may be good and clean to those who believe and know the truth as described here in 1 Timothy chapter 4, not all things edify the church. Not all things are helpful. 1 Corinthians teaches us this very thing. There Paul writes in regard to our liberties and freedoms. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. He says, let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. We need to make sure that when we exercise our liberties, that we're thinking of others and being mindful of whether or not our liberties will be seen as a stumbling block to others. We don't want to do anything that would cause our brother or sister in Christ to stumble. If we stumble a fellow believer in our liberties, we are no longer walking in love towards them. And that is what God warns us of. In Romans, Paul writes, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these, manner, in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace 
and the things by which one may edify another. A good minister of Jesus Christ will use their liberties to serve one another in love. They know what they believe. They know what is right, what is truth, but they don't use that as a license to do whatever they want. They consider others in love, as described in the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, it states, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. That's the aim for us as good ministers of Christ, to know our liberties, but to exercise them in love towards one another. Back to our text in verse 6. It says, if you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine. We'll pause there. We've already mentioned verse 6 a little bit, noting how Paul exhorted Timothy to teach the brethren these important truths. Paul states how Timothy will be a good minister of Jesus Christ if he instructs the brethren in these things. He also states that he will be nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine. This is obviously in contrast to the false teachers who departed the faith and taught the doctrines of demons. So you've got doctrine of demons on one side and good doctrine on the other side. The word nourished, it speaks of proper feeding. Okay? And of course, this points us back once again to the importance of taking in God's word. We need a steady diet of God's word. We need to be taking part, partaking of it regularly, allowing it to nourish us, to strengthen us, to feed our souls. The word of God isn't something that we just read once and say, well, you know, I know what God's word says. That's what Glenn said, one of the first points. Good minister knows the word. I know what it says now, and that's good enough for me. Hey, you're not going to get very far, okay? And this isn't something as if reading the Bible once through was sufficient to keep us going for the rest of our days. We need to be partaking of it on a regular basis. God's word is food for the soul and for the spirit. If we want to have a healthy spiritual life, we need to be partaking of it on a regular basis. And a good minister of Jesus Christ will be nourished and strengthened by a healthy diet of God's word. But there's more here in verse 6 I want to point out. It's a little more subtle, but it's still important. Let's read it again in its entirety. Verse 6 says, If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine, which you have carefully followed. Paul noted here at the end of verse 6 how Timothy had carefully followed the good doctrine. Now, the phrase, you have carefully followed, is actually just one verb in the Greek, Okay, and the thing I want to note about this Greek verb is that it is written in the perfect tense. Okay? If you don't know what the perfect tense in Greek is, don't worry, I'll explain it. Okay? The perfect tense okay, in Greek is used to describe a completed verbal action that occurred in the past, but which produced a state of being or a result that exists in the present. Okay? The emphasis in the perfect tense of Greek is not on the past action as much as it is upon the present state that is resulting from that past action. And so what that means here is that Timothy was a man that carefully followed good doctrine in the past and that he continued to do so all the way up until the present time. His careful following of good doctrine was something that described the kind of man that he was. 
And it tells us that Timothy is a very faithful man. And faithfulness is a very important part of service and ministry. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2 states to us, Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. Okay? Faithfulness. If we want to be a good minister of Jesus Christ, we need to be faithful with what God has given to us. Okay, And as we are faithful with little, God will continue to give us more, building upon the faithfulness that we show in serving and loving one another. Let's continue in our text. Read verses 7 through 9 with me. It says, But reject profane and old wise fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Paul exhorts Timothy to reject those things that are profane, things that are made up stories, old wives' fables. They were the things the false teachers were caught up in, and Paul didn't want Timothy to have anything to do with that sort of stuff. Instead, Paul exhorts Timothy to hit the gym, okay? Hit the gym and exercise himself toward godliness. The word exercise is the Greek word gymnazo, and it's where we get our English word gymnasium, or what we commonly refer to, refer to as the gym, okay? The word means to train oneself, to discipline oneself. Look, I don't need to tell you guys all about the discipline that's needed to be successful in the gym. <laughs> Most of you guys are hitting the gym three, four, five times a week, some of you guys, or you're out you know, running miles upon miles all over the place, or you're riding your bike all over the place. I know because I see you on Strava, okay? And I should follow you. I'll give you kudos for that one. That's a good one. Uh, but you guys know what that takes, right? It takes discipline. It takes a commitment to exercise our physical bodies. It takes a lot of training and dedication to be successful. Look, it's no different in the spiritual life. Okay? We need to be disciplined spiritually. We need to be training our spirits like many of you are training your bodies. We need to be doing our spiritual exercises reading God's Word, applying God's Word, spending time in prayer and meditation, fasting from time to time, attending public worship services, praising God in song, giving of your time, your treasure, and your talents for the service of God. These are spiritual disciplines we need to be regularly engaged in. You know, too many people give up too quickly when it comes to exercise, I think, and it's the same when it comes to spiritual exercise, okay? People make a commitment, you know, to do something really big. You know, maybe they're like, oh, I'm going to read the Bible cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, right? And, and they make that commitment, and they get behind a couple days, and then they simply just give up. Listen, we need to develop a better training plan. Nobody decides to run a marathon without first working up to that sort of distance. 
Okay, give yourself some achievable goals that you can reach and, and build up to those greater goals. Just like in running, you, you might start with a 5K race or maybe a 10K race, uh, and then you might work your way up to a half marathon. Okay, it takes months of training stacked on top of one another to successfully complete a marathon. And yet people think that they can go spiritual. I'm going to go do a marathon today, and I haven't done any practice or, or preparation at all. How foolish is that? It's the same spiritually. It takes discipline. It takes commitment to maintain a healthy spiritual life. And a good minister of Jesus Christ will exercise themselves towards godliness. They'll put in the work. They'll put in the effort. They'll make the commitment. They'll be dedicated. Why? Because as Paul writes here, bodily exercise profits a little. But godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. Listen, I'm not here to, to say you shouldn't exercise. Physical bodily exercise is good. You should take care of your temple, okay? But it's short-sighted. It only benefits you while you're here on earth. Its benefits are temporal. But spiritual exercise carries both benefits. It benefits you now here on earth in the temporal, but it also will benefit you later in heaven in the eternal. And so you have to ask yourself this question, would you rather invest your time and energy in something that will only benefit you temporarily or upon something that will benefit you now and for the rest of eternity? It seems like an easy choice to me of which we should do. Back to our text. We'll wrap this up. Take a look at our final verse, verse 10. He says, For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Paul starts verse 10 with the phrase, To this end. Which end is he talking about? I believe he's talking about the life which is to come in the eternal. Right? This is what our focus is upon. This is what we're aiming for, what we're longing for, that promise of the life which is to come. And it's because of our hope and trust in God that we labor and suffer reproach. Your scripture, your translation might say strive. The word labor, it speaks of being fatigued, of being worn out. You see, just like physical exercise, a good spiritual workout can be tiring, but we don't quit, right? We, we take a breather, and then we get back in there for another set. The word suffer, reproach, it speaks of going through difficulties, facing possible reproach and or criticism for our walk with the Lord. But listen, all of those things are worth it because we're looking to heaven. We're looking to the eternal reward that's awaiting us. We don't mind getting tired, we don't mind hey, the potential backlash we may get from others because our focus is upon God in heaven. You see, a good minister of Jesus Christ will continually trust in the living God no matter what comes their way. Because we can face tough times and we can make it through adversity because we are trusting in the one and only living God who is the Savior of all men. Now, when it says that God is the Savior of all men, it does not mean that everyone is going to be saved, though some people wish that's what it meant, okay? Um, that's 
what they call universalism, okay? That everybody's going to be saved. Um, that universalism, universalism is not what this verse is teaching, nor is it something that is taught anywhere within the Bible, okay? What this means is that God's act of sending his son to die on the cross was an act powerful enough to save all men. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. John chapter 3, verse 17, not 16. Everybody knows 16, right? 17 is a really good one, too. 1 John 2, 2 states, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Okay? Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of all humanity, but the effect of his salvation will only come upon those who believe. That's why Paul states that God is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Christ's sacrificial death was for the whole world, but his sacrifice will only benefit those who place their hope and belief in the completed work of the cross. And so there you have it. Okay? We listed off Eight examples of what a good minister of Jesus Christ will do. Okay? They will abide in Christ. They will know God's word, be sensitive to God's word. They will be nourished by God's word. They will use their liberties in love. They will be faithful. They will be disciplined as they exercise themselves towards godliness. And they will continually trust in God, no matter what happens. Amen? Amen? Amen. I pray for us. My hope and my desire is that we all desire to be good ministers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we allow these examples to be things that we put into our own lives. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word and for this morning, this opportunity to get into your word, to study it, to allow it to just mold us and shape us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that you have called each and every one of us into the ministry. We are called to serve, Lord, and we want to be good ministers. Lord, we want to be profitable servants. Lord, we want to honor you and do well by you, Lord. Not because we're earning our salvation. Our salvation is in you, Lord. It's because of your completed work. We place our hope and faith in that, Lord. But once we're saved, Lord, we want to we honor you. We want to serve you. We want to glorify you. We want to represent you to a lost and dying world. And so, Lord, empower us by your spirit that dwells within each of us to be a good minister of yours, Lord, to be a faithful minister, to be a profitable servant that we might bring honor and glory to you and you alone. We ask and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.